Well, good evening, and may the Lord bless you. It is good to be here with you at the, at the summer Bible school. So uh, thanks for coming and um, making all of this possible. And um, I was thinking as I was, as I was driving here, so there's a number of speakers here this week. There's um, obviously Chris Salsas is talking, and then I'll be talking, and then Dave, and probably all on different subjects, or at least somewhat different subjects. And I couldn't help but thinking um, after the end of this, you'll probably feel like you've just been given a fresh drink of water from a fire hydrant. Because how can you take, there's so much information coming from so many directions. Be like a fresh drink of water, but a lot of it, and uh, so much to take in. So I was asked to talk about, or to do a study on a biblical character, the study of a biblical character. And um, that sounds like a one-way street. Like it just goes one way. In other words, we study the moral and the spiritual conduct of any biblical figure, and then do an application and eventually apply those applications to our lives, is what it sounds like. But there could be a play on words. Um, are we doing the character study of a biblical person, or are we doing a study on the biblical character? Another question I have for you is, is how do we move something like this away from just sheer entertainment? and make it meaningful, that it's something we can take with us, and somehow that God is glorified and not just done for entertainment and just for sheer pastime. We all know that the children are the main reason we come to the Bible school, and the parents just kind of come and, and get themselves entertained while the children um, do the important stuff. So how do we move it away from sheer, sheer entertainment into something more meaningful uh, so that God is glorified and that so your life impacts the life of another person, an unbeliever, in the weeks to come? Trivia question from the Bible. Um, how many or who are the four most mentioned characters in the Bible? Who do you think are some of the most mentioned characters in the Bible? So number one, two, three, and four. Jesus, Jesus is number one at about 1,300 mentions. Probably more allusions in the Old Testament to him. I don't think he's in the first four. David would come in at second with about 970 mentions. Then you have Moses, and I think Jacob would be the fourth. So Jesus is mentioned more than any other person in the Bible. Back to our second question. Um, are we doing a character study of a biblical person or doing this, a study on a biblical character? So is there anybody in the Bible, any people in the Bible who we could do an entire study on without making it a study of their moral and spiritual conduct? Are there people who are multifaceted in the scripture who have more than one thing going on? Well, the answer is, yeah, uh, we could talk about Daniel and his prophecy without talking about his moral conduct. We could spend hours talking just on eschatology, his end-time prophecies, and so on. Uh, Jesus and his divinity without talking about his moral, spiritual conduct. And yet the Bible is written for us, and personal applications are important to us. We like personal applications. We like when the Bible speaks to us and tells us what to do, and rightly so. In fact, I find it interesting that some of the most important passages in the Bible and relating to prophecy, especially eschatology, talking about the return of Christ, the most important passages that talk about the return of Jesus are always followed by an application. There's always an application that follows. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you read an incredible passage in the Scripture where Paul talks about a mystery, um, that everyone's going to be changed. In the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, he says the corruption puts on incorruption and perishable puts on imperishable. 
and we're all changed at the event of the, at the return of Christ. And at the end of that amazing passage of Scripture, where he talks about the glory and the majesty and the power of a returning Lord and Savior, he says, he says um, Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the, that in the Lord your work is not in vain. So whenever you come to an important passage of prophecy in the Bible, especially talking about the return of Christ, there's always that personal application that follows. Therefore, do this, and be prepared, and be busy. So I think somehow we must learn how to balance our teaching between a praise and a worship and not make it all about moral conduct. Because uh, the return of Christ is praise and worship, and yet the, the writer says to be ready, be prepared. I think um, as a people, we've done and we do fairly well in preparing the Bible for the people, but I'm not so sure we've done so good in preparing the people for the Bible. We lean heavily into moral teaching and forget there's a praise and a worship aspect. There's a glory aspect to the Christian life as well. Well, I've chosen to go the second route in this, um, as we talk about a biblical character. I've chosen to talk about something other than a person's moral, spiritual conduct. And I've chosen to talk about the most mentioned person in the Bible. And for that reason, I'd like to talk to you tonight and tomorrow night on the truth and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was listening to a sermon recently, actually an audio book, I guess it was, where the, this, the speaker was a Christian and talking about a taxi ride he had taken in the Middle East some time ago. And the taxi driver was out of another faith. And so he began sharing his Christian faith, faith with the taxi driver. And at the end of his beautiful illustration of the, the saving power of Jesus, the taxi driver says, it's the beautiful story. If only it were true. If only it were true. We know it's true. We know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. But most of the arguments that we make in defense of the Bible are actually the same arguments that those of another faith would make about their holy book. We say things like, well, it's the Bible. Of course it's true. It's exactly what they say about the Quran and the, uh, the Hindu Vedic writings and so on. I believe that thousands are drawn to the Bible, not just for the beauty, but for the truthfulness of its message. So if we talk to a person about the Bible being true, um, why are we right and why are they wrong? How do you and I defend our belief in the scripture? And why are we right and why are they wrong? Because most of the arguments that we make are the same things they're saying about their scriptures as well. So for an outline for this, this week, um, under the heading of the beauty and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'd like to talk tonight about a, something called a missionary's challenge. And tomorrow evening, the gospel of Christ in comparison to other religions, where we look at the beauty and the truth of the gospel of Jesus uh, in comparison to some of the other world major religions and why Jesus and his gospel come through and the others do not. And if I speak on Thursday evening, I'd like to talk then about the gospel message and its assurance to all who believe it. So tonight, a missionary's challenge. Samuel Escobar is a Latin-born Christian, and he's also a world-renowned missiologist. And that means he's a person who spends time studying, teaching, and writing on missions and missionaries. He's been around the world, and he's seen a lot of missions at work and in practice. 
1973, he wrote a book that he called The New Global Mission. Now, this book has been revised a number of times since, but he first authored it in uh, 1973. And he makes a number of extremely fascinating observations. He talks in that book about the major shifts within Christianity uh, geographically and how that in the first 1,000 years of Christianity, he, what he calls the center of gravity for Christianity, he says, was concentrated in what we would call the Middle East, from Jerusalem over into Rome, is where the most Christians were concentrated in the world, in the Middle East. Um, the church eventually commandeered by Constantine and moved into Rome. In the second 1,000 years of the church, the, the church, the center of gravity for Christianity, made a shift westward from Rome into Europe and into North America. And for the, the second 1,000 year, for the, um, the second millennium of the church, from 1,000 to 2,000, the center of gravity for Christianity was clearly in Europe and North America. That's where the, the most Christians were. But then he says, now as we enter this third millennium, the, the third 1,000 year portion of the church, he says the center of gravity for Christianity has shifted again, and it shifted away from North America and shifted southward. He says we now have more Christians in Africa, Asia, and South America than we do in Europe and in North America. And most people, according to this author, would regard America as a post-Christian nation where the glory of God has departed. And he says there's lots of young Christians in China, for example, who regard America as, as a potential mission field. They see us as in need of the gospel here in America. And uh, a lot of these people, these young Asian Christians, are doing what's called a back to Jerusalem movement where they're leaving their homeland and carrying the gospel message of Jesus through some of the most hostile Islamic nations in the world, through some hardline Islamic nations. And uh, they say that we're gonna take the gospel back to where it began, back into Jerusalem. And they're saying things like, we're being persecuted and killed in our country. Why not be persecuted and killed in other countries? And at least let them hear the story, the gospel. Eshkabar goes on to talk about the various denominations and their success and their failures in the mission fields, both at home and abroad. He's a very kind writer. It doesn't say a bad word, very gentle. And he talks about the strength and then the weaknesses of denominations in missions. And I was interested as I read his book, um, he talked about the Presbyterian missions and the Pentecostals, the Episcopalians, the Baptists, and I was wondering whether he's gonna mention the Anabaptists, and sure enough he did, one of the last denominations that he mentioned. And he talked about how that they're doing in missions and mission fields in the world, whether it's at home or overseas. Here's what he said. He says they're doing fairly well in a lot of areas but it feels like they're determined to show the world their faith by doing good deeds. But they have virtually no gospel proclamation. And the sad thing about that, according to him, is that any other major world religion can do the same thing, can, can demonstrate their faith through good deeds and good works. He says the Anabaptists are the first people at hurricane and disaster relief, which is good. But if we're determined to show the world our faith through our good deeds with no gospel proclamation, we're no different than that of another faith. He says that the Anabaptist has only, trend, has only traversed halfway around his hermeneutic circle as he observes the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has half of it down pat, 
but there's the other half he still hasn't figured out and completed. He's not preaching the gospel message. What if he took Escobar seriously? Is he right? You know, our tendency is to brush things like it off and say, well, he's just such and such um, from another denomination. We don't need to pay him any mind to that. But be careful, because we often call ourselves the lowly and the meek and the humble and a Baptist, but we have a tendency to feel that we're still better than everyone else. So be careful. I think we should take this person seriously and um, look at some reasons why a, a renowned missiologist would look at the Anabaptist faith and say they don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the mission field. So I took it serious when I read the book, and I began writing down some possibilities of why we struggle in preaching the gospel. I have five I want to give to you this evening, and um, I'm not being mean or critical. I'm not coming down on any person. I think it's for our benefit. I think as a Christian, we should have a proclamation. We should have the gospel on our lips at all times. And there is a danger in just doing good deeds without telling people who our Lord and Savior is, because any other major world religion can do the same thing. It's no different. So let's look at five possibilities and why we struggle to proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Number one, I think we struggle with a clear, concise definition of the gospel. We struggle with a clear and a concise definition of the gospel. So the the word gospel comes from the Old English, and it's the word God and spell combined. And uh, God, of course, means what it does. Spell in the Old English would have meant news or a story. So it's God's story. That's what gospel really means. It's God's story. But we move back into the Greek undertext in the New Testament. What's the word they used for gospel? And it's the word evangelion would be the noun. Evangelizo would be the verb. And this is what's translated then into the English gospel. Both of these come from the, um, the Greek root word angelus, which means messenger. But why did, the, why did the gospel writers, the disciples and the apostles, why did they use this word when talking about gospel? Because it's a word that was being circulated in their culture. So they used it, they grabbed it and brought it in and used it to, to describe God's story. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, an evangelios was a person who carried a message of victory often after a battle was won. So the battle was fought over here, and the victory is won, and the messenger would come back across to his hometown, and he carried a message of victory, the, the evangelios. So the gospel writers took that word and put it into the New Testament. That means that the gospel and those who proclaim it are the ones who are carrying a message of victory. They're telling God's story a message of victory. So what is a clear, concise definition of the gospel? Uh, A book I was reading recently at home by Gary Habermas and Mike Lacona, where they make a case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, put it like this. Uh, Three sentences, the gospel of Jesus. Number one, Jesus is God. Number two, Jesus died in our stead. Number three, Jesus rose back to life, victorious over grave, death, and hell. Jesus is God, he died in our place, he rose again. That's the proclamation, that's the gospel, that's the good news. 
we need a clear and a concise definition of the gospel. Number two, the second reason I think we may struggle in presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ as a people is we fail to draw a distinction between God's proclamation and then the human response. I think there's a separation between the proclamation of the good news and the human response to that proclamation. In John 3.16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. That's the proclamation. That's the voice of God. For whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the human response. I see a clear difference in that. If we only believe that verse, we wouldn't stop, we couldn't be silent. In our presentation of the gospel, where there's a tendency to leapfrog over the proclamation and go straight for human behavior, we say things like, if you, if you just get your life in order, maybe God could save you, things like that. We leapfrog over the proclamation, over God's part, and go straight for human behavior. I probably shouldn't tell these stories, but um, in our pre my previous generation, some of the older people who I've known, older men who I admired and, and interacted with, um, had a strange way of, of preaching the gospel. I heard many a person say to a sinner, you know, if you don't stop cursing like that, you're going to go to hell. Or if you don't stop smoking those cigarettes, you're going to hell. That's not the gospel. That's not God's proclamation. That's leapfrogging over the proclamation and going straight for human behavior. Um, every sermon that I have discovered, I think, in the book of Acts has kind of a pattern that it follows as these early apostles and disciples took out this gospel message. And you can find it uh, over and over again. We can look at a few if we have time, but probably not. The first thing they talked about was the exalted and the, the ascended lordship of Jesus Christ. There you have Jesus as God. The second thing they talked about was the cross and the resurrection. There you have that Jesus died in our stead and rose again. That's the gospel message. Their message was empowered by word and spirit because when they, when they connected Jesus of Nazareth to the Old Testament prophecies of a Messiah, God poured out his spirit. You read it again and again in the book of Acts. When they connected Jesus of Nazareth to the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah, God immediately poured out his spirit. They had a message of repentance and forgiveness come through over and over again. And they always referred back, hark back to an apostolic witness. It wasn't hearsay, but it's because according to eyewitnesses, we have this message. People seen this because of eyewitnesses. And the result of this kind of preaching in the book of Acts again and again, you'll find a thriving, close-knit, Christian community that sprung up behind that teaching. The central message was Jesus Christ, and the church sprang up and clustered around that message. I think 2,000 years later, there's, there's denominations and churches who've changed a lot of that. The central message isn't Jesus Christ anymore. Take the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, who don't, they don't hold to this, the uh, doctrine of solo scriptura, where the scripture is the highest authority, that they have other things that they use. Basically, they hold to solo ecclesia, where the church is the highest authority. Their church is highest authority. And what they do with Christ is he's just drug into the mix now and then as some kind of an anchor or a justifier 
for their philosophy on church being highest authority. But the, the apostles, the central message was Jesus Christ and him crucified and resurrected. And the church sprang up and was clustered around that teaching. Uh, church was not the highest authority. There should be a clear distinction between God's proclamation and then the human response. As one writer put it, God is responsible for, God is responsible for salvation. Humans, or we, are responsible for our sins. And where else could we go but to the cross of Jesus Christ? So we have to make a clear distinction between the proclamation of God and the human response to that gospel. I also think there's a difference between salvation and sanctification. This is the third point. Uh, I think it's possible that salvation is a one-time event and sanctification is a lifelong process. And we know these things. We know all of this. In Ephesians, the Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. And that's salvation, a gift, a free gift from God. But then in 1 Peter we can read that where he says, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. It's pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you, until you receive this salvation, which I think is harking back to that priceless inheritance, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So there's a clear distinction between salvation and sanctification. Um, I've heard it said that salvation is a one-time event when God saves you. Sanctification is a lifelong process as God works in and man works out. And he, he's making us into the image of his son and shaping us for heaven. There's an enormous difference in a person being full of good works and a life full of fruit if a person is doing it in hopes of salvation or if that person is doing that because of salvation. So what does a Muslim have to do to get to heaven? Or a Hindu or a Buddhist? What do they have to do to get to heaven? Good works. They have to earn it. That means that in Christianity, the starting point is at the very best only the hope for finish line in all other world religions. And that's the assurance of salvation. That's our starting point. At the very best, it's only their hoped-for finish line, the assurance of salvation. And if you take that away from Christianity, there's really nothing left. So there's a difference between salvation and sanctification. God saves us, and then he purifies us. This fourth point is, um, you have to bear with me on this, I'm not coming down or being unkind to anyone when I say this, and especially not here, but is it possible that there's only one person who can rightfully make the statement or use the phrase, my church? And that's the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I know what we mean. We, we say this and use this a lot, and I understand that. We talk about my church or our church or how we do things. I understand all of that. But there's really just one person who can rightfully make that statement. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. And if we just get a hold of that concept, we'll be so much closer 
to preaching the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church, and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But I know we all have an important role to play in this. God is using all of us in building his church, the church of Christ. But if Christ is the one building his church, then everyone else pales in significance to that. And then the final point that I have, the fifth point in um, what I think may be an Anabaptist struggle in, in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ is what I'm going to call a remedial confusion of categories. Our remedy to the human crisis may be flawed. We might have shifted categories. Uh, let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. One of the most familiar stories in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, in verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat out of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you do, you shall surely die. The words of the Lord. So what happened to Adam and Eve? And by the way, that was just to Adam. Eve wasn't on the scene yet. Adam got that instruction, not his wife. What happened to both of them? What kind of death did they experience immediately after they disobeyed God? What type of death did they experience right after they disobeyed God? A spiritual death. Not a physical, but a spiritual death. So I think we all tend to agree that humanity's dilemma is a spiritual disconnection from God. I'm talking about the unsaved people out there. Humanity's dilemma is that they're spiritually disconnected from God. Right? It's a spiritual disconnection. But when you listen carefully to a lot of our, our sermons and our teaching in the mission field and even at home, most of our teaching, if not all of it, is moralistic. So is it, possible, <laughs> is it possible that we all tend to agree that humanity's crisis or dilemma is a spiritual dilemma, but we keep insisting that the remedy or the solution is moral? We talk an awful lot about human betterment and human improvement and things like that. But I think what people need primarily is a savior and not a methodology to save them. We need a savior and not a method to save us. We need a relationship and not just some system to live out of. I'm not for one moment advocating immorality and things like that. It's the least, of, the further thing from me. But I think we've confused categories. Humans are, are disconnected from God spiritually so, Jesus, I don't think so much came into this world to make bad people good, but he came into this world to make dead people live spiritually alive. And when a person is alive in Christ, he will do that which is good and right in the eyes of the Lord.
There's lots of room for, for good, solid, moral teaching. But that's not the gospel message. We need a savior and a relationship. So it's possible that we've severely misaligned categories in our interpretation of the gospel, I think especially abroad in our missions and mission fields. Um, we need to pr make God's proclamation. People need a savior and not just some methodology to save them. So those are the five points that I came up with when I, when I looked at Samuel Escobar's challenge. And uh, someone else would have looked at that and probably had five completely different, and that's okay. That's just where my mind went. And I think that um, it's important that we understand some of these things in our proclamation of God's gospel. Uh, a clear definition of the gospel is very important that we can define what we're talking about. Let me just close with this statement from a writer. This is for the Christian he says, why are we forever discussing the intensity of the indwelling of sin? Why not talk about the intensity of the indwelling of Christ? If sin is so intense as an indwelling reality, then what about the reality and the intensity of the indwelling of Jesus Christ? And he ends with these words, it's very possible that Christ is much nearer to you and to I than we think. All right, I think I'll pray and then we can be dismissed. I didn't want to step on anybody's toes. I'm just, I'm just, whatever. That's where I went to with my thoughts this evening. And uh, always open to be pushed around and be corrected. But may the Lord bless you. And um, I think if anything, this week, this upcoming week, to make this Sunday or this Bible school worthwhile, not just, not just entertainment, let's at least meet one or two people and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why not? There's really nothing to lose. Share the gospel with someone who doesn't believe or doesn't know. Let's close in prayer.